Let's turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8 is where we find ourselves. We're concluding our series in this wonderful chapter written by the Apostle Paul. We've called it simply No Condemnation, No Separation as the the chapter begins and ends with those great themes. And uh, we find ourselves here this morning with the great crescendo, the climax, the so what of all that Paul has written thus far. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. As you turn there, let me read for us the words of the Apostle Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You as we've read this passage from Romans chapter 8. That like we do week in and week out as we open our Bibles, we begin to tread on holy ground. That you have spoken and revealed Yourself and Your will and Your purposes in Christ in such a way that it gives us hope and peace and joy and security. Father, some of us are here this morning and our lives are dominated by the sense that we might just be unable to make it. We question from time to time whether You truly love us. And so we pray that as we sit with our Bibles open and we hear what You have said, that it would give us strengthened resolve, increased faith, greater love, stronger sense of Gospel purpose. We need Your help for these things, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is <clears throat> Henry's first year of school, and um, 
Many people told us before we took Henry to school for that first day, he's our only child, that that was going to be a difficult transition. And fortunately, he goes to Neshanik. They've got a system in place to sort of ease children's way into the rhythm of going to school every day. And so day one, you, as the parents, are able to walk your child all the way into the classroom. Day two, to the locker. Day three, to the hallway. Day four, to the front door, and so on and so forth. And the reason they do that is that they're trying to sort of ease or solve the issue of separation anxiety. You know, there is that moment when you drop your children off, when there's all kinds of tears and crying and angst and anxiety, and your children walk into the classroom like, it's fine, but you, on the other hand, are gripped with this this sense of separation anxiety. For some of us as parents, it's extreme. Others, it's rather low grade, but it's there nevertheless. And I think it's safe to say that as followers of Jesus, each and every one of us, to some varying degree, suffer from a sense of separation anxiety. It's not that God has left. And so we have this sensation, this feeling, this questioning that makes us believe somehow or another, maybe God's willing to leave. As I said, for some of us, it's a sort of low-grade questioning. Does God really love me? Is He really committed to me? For others of us, this is our constant companion. Am I truly forgiven? Is Jesus enough? Am I really saved? Separation anxiety. But here in Romans 8, in this last section of this wonderful chapter, again we come to the crescendo, the climax, what Christopher Ashe calls the great so what of Romans chapter 8, in which Paul says very simply, God is for His people forever. If you get that this morning, you've got... Romans 8, 31-39. God is for His people forever. His love is permanent and fixed upon His people in Christ. But we need, don't we, proof. We need to be convinced that God is for us. And very often we ask ourselves the question, how do I know? It's one thing to say that God is for me. It's one thing to say that God loves me. It's one thing to say that I'm a follower of Jesus, but how do I know? And Paul tells us very simply in this passage, how I know that God is for me. How I can be convinced that God is for me. He tells us in verses 31 and 32 that God is for us because He did not spare His own Son. He tells us in verse 33 that God is for us and we know this because He has justified us. He tells us that we can know that God is for us if we've trusted in Jesus because, verse 34, His Son died, was raised, and intercedes for us. And then He tells us finally in verses 35-39 to that we can know, be certain of, the fact that God is for us because He has made us more than conquerors. I know that God is for me. Now I want you to see here, even before we dive into the specifics of the text, 
the way that it begins in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? You see that? What should we say? There are no life principles here. There are no six steps to a better life. There is only something to say to these things. What are the these things that Paul is talking about? Some would say it's Romans 1 to 8. Others would say it's Romans 5 to 8. Others still would say it's simply Romans 8. So regardless of which view we take, we know that these things include but are not limited to necessarily Romans chapter 8. What should we say to these things? What should we say to the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because Jesus was condemned in our place? Verses 1-4. to What then is our response to the fact that God has saved His people from the domain of the flesh and sin and given them new life so that they may obey the law of God? Romans 8, 5-11. What is our response? What do we say to the fact that God has made us co-heirs with Christ because through the Spirit we have become adopted sons and daughters? Romans 8, 12-17. And what do we say to the fact that we, along with everything else that exists, groan for glory that day when our final adoption takes place, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 18-30. What do we say? And the saying, loved ones, is so vital. I said to Johnny earlier this week, a man who cannot stand and preach Romans 8, 31-39 does not have a gospel cell in his body. It should flow from the follower of Jesus. I don't want to embarrass anyone, but if you could hear our elders pray this morning, the elder who prayed through this passage in Romans 8, it just oozed from him. And we want to choke up. What do we say? Lloyd-Jones, who is a physician turned preacher once said have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself you have to take yourself in hand you have to address yourself you have to preach to yourself question yourself and then you must remind yourself of God who God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do what are we going to say in the moments when that separation anxiety flares up what do you say to yourself and to those around you what is the message that you preach Paul says well if God is for us then who can be against us? And how do I know that God is for me? I know that God is for me if I have trusted in Christ because firstly, He did not spare His own Son. Now the text. All that by way of introduction. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now I want you to consider for a moment how dangerous it is, how presumptuous it is for anyone, any man or woman or any group of individuals to say, God is for me. That's to say that God is on my side. 
God is behind me. I'm captivated right now by Bob Dylan. I'm not a lifelong fan. I'm just sort of dipping my toes in the water. I find his lyrics to be absolutely breathtaking and phenomenal. And in a song entitled, With God on Our Side, he addresses this issue of the absolute presumption to say that God is for us. He says, oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from, it's called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there, the laws to abide, and that land that I live in has God on its side. How do I know that? There's got to be something to that. How do I know that God is for me? Well, apart from what Paul says here, it would be absolutely preposterous to claim that God is on your side. But look at what he says. God is for us because he did not spare his own son. Think of Jesus in the garden praying, Father, if there is any other way, the Son of God Himself praying that He might be spared the cross. And He's answered with the painful silence of the Father saying, no, My Son, this is the only way. I will not spare you, but rather I will give you up. Now let's make no mistake here. Jesus is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, handed over, given up by Judas. He is unjustly condemned under trumped-up charges and dies a death that he does not deserve. But in and behind and around all of it is this mystery. That God gave up. That God sacrificed His own Son. Much like Abraham in Genesis, willing to sacrifice his son, God goes the full distance, and rather than sparing Jesus, he gives him up for us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah 53. Sinclair Ferguson says, we'd be forgiven for thinking that God loved us more than his son. He does not spare Jesus. He gives Him over to be sacrificed, to die for our sins, and to raise again so that we might be forgiven. And look at the Gospel logic here. You know, sometimes you and I have a tendency to doubt whether God is for us on the strength of what we have or don't have. If God were really for me, I feel like my life would be a little bit better. I feel like I'd have the things that I really desire. But Paul says, the child of God may not always have the things that he or she desires, but he or she will always have what they need. If God has given the very thing that is most precious to him in all of the universe, how would we think for a moment that he wouldn't give us the accessories that go along with him? Imagine a parent buying their, their children toys for a birthday. And once the toys are opened up and all the things are beginning to be assembled, we realize that we, we're in need of batteries to power the toys. And the parents say, well, enough is enough. You're on your own. That's preposterous. If you've gone the distance of buying the gift for your children, certainly you'd pick up some double A's on the way home as well. And God here, 
if He's given us His Son, will also graciously give us all things. Everything that we need for life in Christ is given graciously. That's how I know that God is for me. He did not spare His Son. But also, and number two, I know that God is for us, for me, because He has justified us. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Lots of people. Right? If you know what it is to be a Christian in this culture, you know what it is to be further marginalized, maligned, ridiculed, persecuted. And if that's not bad enough, you know what it's like to have the accusations of the evil one flood your heart and mind. Accusations of not being good enough of being wrapped up in sin, unworthy of God's grace. And our own hearts conspire to bring charges before the throne of God against ourselves. But yet Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Now notice, it's not that there aren't any charges which are valid, it's that there are no charges that may stick. Paul takes us right into the courtroom. And there is this high drama that takes place as the evil one comes and brings all of our sins and failures before the throne of God. And he says, look at Sarah. Look at Randall. Those are your disciples. Do you see how wrapped up in gossip and lust and laziness she is? Do you see how blasphemous, how worldly he is? Don't you realize how awful these people are, and yet, God, you call them your own? And what the Father says in that moment is, oh yeah, Sarah, Randall, my elect, my chosen ones. Everything that you've just said is absolutely, 100%, without a doubt, true. And you know what I've done? I've sentenced my son to death for those sins, so that now they are justified. Who is there to bring any charge against God's elect, Paul says? God is the one who justifies. There is no higher court. There is no supreme court that might be appealed to. God is the full and final authority, and He has justified you. That's how you know that God is for you. Romans chapter 4, justification negatively is the forgiveness of sins. And positively is the counting, the imputation is the word of Jesus' own perfect record to my account. So God says, what of it, Satan? Justified. I know that God is for me. Not only because He has given His Son, I know that He is for me because He has justified me. Every charge brought against me, 100% true, but never sticks. Because there's no double jeopardy in the kingdom of God. And Jesus has already paid the price of my sin. How do I know that God is for me? I know that He is for me, thirdly, because Jesus, His Son, died, was raised, and is now at the right hand and interceding for us. How do I know that He's for me? 
Do you notice here where Paul goes again to the courtroom? Who is there to condemn? I love what Paul does here. It's almost like he's issuing a challenge, isn't it? Where's the one who has a charge against God's elect? Where is the one who might condemn? I love what Tony Morita calls this passage. He calls it the who dat passage of Romans 8. You know, from the New Orleans Saints. Who dat, who dat, who dat, say they're going to beat them saints? The answer is no one. Well, people beat the saints, but we'll let them go. There is no one, Paul says, who might bring a condemning charge against the people of God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And understand this, this is the reason there's no condemnation for you if you are in Christ this morning. There is only one in the entire universe who has the authority and the record to condemn, and that's Jesus. There's only one sinless person who's ever lived, and that's Jesus. But rather than condemning you, understand this, Jesus, the sinless one, was content to be condemned for you. Who is there to condemn? The one who can condemn was condemned. He is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Romans 4.25, delivered up for our sins, raised for our justification, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In effect, Paul says every one of God's people is lawyered up. And as we go traipsing back into that courtroom, we see Jesus himself and every accusation, every condemning charge ever brought about uh, before the Father on account of the people of God, Jesus' Father. Do you see these words? Have I not bled? Have I not died? Did I not rise again? Father, forgive them. Forgive him. Forgive her. Over and over and over it goes. Who is there left to condemn? Remember that story in the Gospel of John in chapter 8? It's a disputed text of the New Testament when the woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus and Jesus finally, when all of the Pharisees walk away, He says to her, is there anyone left to condemn you? She says, no. And Jesus looks at her and He says, neither do I condemn you. I'll be condemned for you, but I won't condemn you. So you've got to preach this to yourself. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Where in the world do you hear good news like this? What do you have to say? God is for us. I know this because He has given His Son. He has justified us because His Son died, raised, and is interceding for us. And fourthly and finally, because He has made us more than conquerors. What a phrase. How can you be more than a conqueror? Let me ask you that for a moment. Think about that for five seconds. How can you be more than a conqueror? If you are a conqueror, you are at the top. You, you rule it all. You've dominated. Paul says we are more than conquerors. The word is huper. 
in the Greek. He puts the prefix huper. So I, the Mike Wilmer translation is we are huper, super duper conquerors. What does that mean? Some of us have a sense that God is not for us because we are plagued by this nagging doubt that we'll be able to make it. One woman in a life group of mine in in Cleveland once asked for prayer. She said, I just don't know that I'm going to finish strong. I made a good start. But how can I be assured that I'll finish? And so Paul says, who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now understand this. Every human relationship, I don't care what how much or how deep the love runs, every human relationship has an ending point. There's something that breaks the cords of love. That thing might be death, but nevertheless, love runs out. But here, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, hardship, distress or despair, persecution, famine, lack of food, nakedness, lack of clothing, danger, or even the sword. Will any of these things be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ? All things Paul experienced. He hasn't yet faced the sword, but he will. And he knows from experience that it's true that none of these things are able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And lest any of us think that somehow or another our hardships and our afflictions are a strange thing, Paul quotes from Psalm 44, the text that Kendall read for us, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The message of Psalm 44 is, God, in ages past, things for your people were really good. But now here in exile, it looks like everything is conspiring to be against us, even you. But nevertheless, rouse yourself. It ends on this note of hope that God indeed is still for His people Paul's message here is same as it ever was. We experience these hardships and sometimes we think for a moment that they're, they're, they're just too much for us to bear. We'd, we'd like to tap out, maybe give up, find an easier route. Maybe they'll separate us from the love of God in Christ. But look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are hooper, super duper conquerors through Him who loved us. This is not a boasting in our own strength. This is not a celebration of our own power. This is a humble submission to the God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His throne faultless and with great joy, Jude 24. It's confidence that God sets His love on His people and it is a love that will not quit. For I am sure, Paul says, I am convinced, I know this, take it to the bank, that neither death nor life. Is that categorical? Apparently not enough. Because it's not death nor life, nor angels nor rulers. There's no spiritual power that exists that could separate God's love from you. 
nor things present or to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing that exists, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us, divorce us from the love of God in Christ. And you know what that means? Battered and bruised saint. Don't know if I'm going to make it. You know what is gloriously included in that nothing in all of creation? You. You. In Christ, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make Him stop loving you. And the reverse is true. There's absolutely nothing you can do to make Him love you more. Such is the love of God in Christ. Nothing I do today will ever make Him love me one ounce more than He already does. And nothing I can do today will make Him love me one ounce less. Nothing. I have found in my life, call me peculiar, I don't know, that most of my favorite models, my most trusted guides in the Christian life are old and gone. There's a man named John Chrysostom. They used to call him the golden mouth. Preacher in the 4th and 5th century. And at one point, he's brought before this empress, Eudoxia, and she's threatening him as a preacher that she'll punish him if he continues to proclaim Jesus. And she, punishes, or she threatens to punish him with banishment. And he says to her, he looks boldly into her face and he says, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. Send me somewhere that doesn't belong to my God, I dare you. But I will kill you, she said. No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. I have a life which you know nothing about. Well, then I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. How can you touch my treasures. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. What does it mean to be a hooper, super-duper conqueror? It's to understand, friends, that if I am in Christ, every hardship, every enemy, God turns into a friend. The afflictions of life are made to make me more like Jesus. Death has now lost its sting, and so we sing from time to time, don't we? I will not fear that final night, for death will be the door to life. Tell that to your friends at work and watch how they look at you. You can only say that if you are more than a conqueror, so that even when you lose, you win. So you won't understand this. Some of us in this room are from Cleveland, and we say all the time, as Browns fans, even when we lose, we win, because we get a higher draft pick. So come at us. There's nothing. You can't touch us. How are you going to harm a Browns fan? I mean, we, we've got years, decades of this thing going. Even when we lose, we win, all right? The Christian life is such that even when you lose, you win. He turns our greatest enemies into the best of friends. So therefore, nothing, 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You want to go beyond this message? I mean, you, really? You want to hear anything else than Romans 8, 31 and 39? Why? What in your life, what challenge, what hardship that could ever present itself to you isn't more than adequately met with if God is for us? Who can be against us? The answer is not no one. Many are against us. The answer is, ultimately, even those who are against us, if God is for us, are unwittingly for us. This is the gospel. How do I know that God is for me? Well, I know, number one, He did not spare His Son. I know, number two, that He has justified me. I know, number three, that His Son died, was raised, and intercedes for me. And I know, because I'm still walking, He made me more than a conqueror. No triumphalism here. Simple gospel affirmations. When I am storm-tossed, beaten down, questioning the love of God for me, what do I do? I say, what do I have to say to these things? What, do I have an answer? You know, there's that moment when you sit down with your friend for coffee and they tell you all about the good that's happening in their life and they say, well, say something. And Paul for eight chapters has told you immensely good news and he says, well, now say something. And all of God's people say, well, if God is for us, huh, who could possibly, even for a moment, be against us? Let's pray. Father, there's no point in our lives at which we stop needing to be reminded of these amazing, amazing truths. Not only to be reminded of them, but to preach them to ourselves and to one another that you are inseparably for your people. For those of us who have confessed our sins and trusted holy in Jesus to be forgiven. We can say with confidence that you are for us because you gave your son, you justified us, he died, rose, and intercedes for us, and you have made us more than conquerors. So we pray that every step of our Christian lives, we would remind ourselves and one another of this reality. A day in and day out, we would go deeper and deeper and deeper into this gospel and into this understanding of who you are for us. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there is nothing that will ever successfully separate us from you. Truly in Jesus, we live happily ever after. And so we pray through the difficulty, through the hardship, through the affliction, through the disease, and we would look to Jesus and see 
the proof of your love. As Augustine said, the cross is the pulpit, the place from which God proclaims his love. Help us to never doubt your love for us as we look on Christ. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.